somewhere at Sam's Warehouse or something, Warehouse Club. So <clears throat> I hope I'm uh, still solvent when I get back. <laughs> Remains to be seen. <laughs> okay, we want to, uh, uh, we talked about a biblical view of marriage, the first session. Our second session, we had the opportunity to deal with um, God's design for husbands. And we mentioned three things there. Uh, gentlemen, and you have those memorized already and you're ready to share those things. With, let's impress the ladies one more time here. Three things you got to remember in order to be a godly husband. Ready? Learner. Lover. Leader. That's right. Learner. Lover. Leader. Those three things. Now, there's three things we also want to share with the ladies. All right. Three things that they're going to memorize and stick in the back pocket of their memory and pull it out every now and then to see how am I doing as a godly wife? How are things going with that? And um, this is where we get to God's design for wives. Now, I don't know whether you can see this from where you're seated, but up here, uh, this is an illustration of what some wives really think of their husbands. It's a little comic strip that, uh, called Flight Deck that uh, I was able to pull out. And it says, the counselor says here, Now, when we last met, I asked each of you to bring a list of things uh, that your spouse does that really annoy you. Now, if you take a look on the pile of paper that she has there, and he has a little posty note. <laughs> All right. Now that's, believe it or not, what makes that so funny is that that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon. Um, seriously, I had a couple come to me for counseling. They'd been married for about 10 years. And um, we had prayer. And I said, what is it that brings you here to counseling? And they both said, well, it was their marriage and that they were having marital problems. And right at that particular point, the wife reached into the little handbag that she had. It was a good size handbag. And she pulls out a half ream of paper. There's about 50 pages and laid it in front of me. And she pointed at it and she said, this is the reason why we're having problems in our marriage. And I picked it up and this was single spaced, not double spaced, about 50 pages of every wrong thing her husband had ever done. She had kept record of it. Every wrong thing her husband had ever done. I still have that, that thing in my file. All right? I don't, I've never read the whole thing. I got depressed after the second page. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I never did read the whole thing. I didn't want to. But, um, and... I said, I looked at her and I said, you're right. That's the reason why you're having problems in your marriage. But I didn't mean it the same way she meant it. I didn't mean it the same way. And I said to her, I said, do you love your husband? She said, yeah, I love my husband. I said to her, I don't think you do. And I don't think God thinks you love your husband either. And she got really offended. I said, I don't mean to offend you, but I don't think you do. How can you say that? How can you say that I don't love my husband? You really don't know us yet. And I said, I don't say that. God says that. Where does God say that I don't love my husband? I said, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love 
keeps no record of wrongs. Whoa. And she just stared at me as that, as she thought about that. She had been keeping record of all the wrong things that he had done for years, for years. No wonder she was unhappy. If this is what she dwelled upon all the time in her thinking, in her mind, all the wrong things, and certainly her husband had enough wrong things going on in, her, in his life. I didn't, I didn't begrudge her any of that. But if that's where her mind was, if that's where she was going to dwell all the time, no wonder she was negative and pessimistic, and no wonder there was strife and argumentativeness and quarreling in that marriage. No wonder. So there were problems. As a result of that, there are really an awful lot of women who are very unhappy in marriage. Um... They're unhappy, they're discontent, not because they can't find happiness and contentment, but because they've really not known how or even tried to do things God's way in their marriage. And as we talk today, I want you to focus on what does the Word of God say about my role as a wife? If I am going to be a godly wife, what does that look like? I mean, really biblically. I know that there are habits that we all fall into. I know that there are different community and social customs that we're more than aware of. But the bottom line here is, what does the Word of God say? What, is the, what does the Word of God really say? If I believe, if I'm a professing Christian and I believe that the Bible, the 66 canonical books of the inspired, inerrant, sufficient Word of God describes what my responsibility is and that's authoritative, then I better take that seriously. What does it say? What does it really say about my role? In most homes, roles really have been meted out like tossed salad. Few couples really have a biblical view of what their role should be. They don't have a real good grasp on it. And I think that if you were to survey women in your average Bible-believing conservative church, um, they, they wouldn't get a very high score on what the Bible really says their role is. What is it? Uh, how am I supposed to function in this way? Well, one of the first things that we have to talk about, and we have to talk about it because it's there in the Bible, is the concept of submission. You knew that one's coming up. I know. Some of you are already ducking. All right? You knew that that was coming up. And I'm wondering... What comes to your mind when I bring that term up? Because to a lot of women, when I bring that particular term up, this is what comes to their mind. <laughs> there he is, walking along in front of his wife while, he's, while she's carrying this great big load. <clears throat> this was a picture taken in Eastern Europe. But uh, there, that, that's the first thing that comes to her mind when I mention the word submission. Or maybe it's something like this. 
All right. <laughs> Another Eastern Europe picture. Okay. That's submission. Or a little bit more of a contemporary housewife. Oh, when I hear submission, this is what I think about. It has to do with cleaning toilets in our, in our home. That's what it has to do with. So I'm wondering what comes to your mind when you hear that word. What does the Bible mean when a godly wife is supposed to be submissive? What is it? Well, in order to deal with this particular term, and this is the first term that we've got to understand, if you're going to be a Christ-like, God-honoring wife, it has to be, the term that we're dealing with is the term submission. What does that mean? Well, let's talk about what it's not first, and then we're going to talk about what it is, right? Let's talk about what it's not. Let's see if we can dispel any bad ideas about what submission is before we talk about the real thing and what the Bible really does say about it. First of all, submission does not mean, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to take, he's taking notes feverishly, all right? I don't think there's any problem. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I see carbon paper. He's making double coffee. <laughs> People don't use carbon paper anymore, do they? They've got computers, so nobody uses carbon paper. Boy, I'm dating myself with that term, aren't I? <clears throat> I remember when my father was a pastor, my father... My entire life was a pastor. He used to use a mimeograph machine. You remember those? Mimeograph machines? All right, to make your bulletin, and you got those little things you'd have to crank and stuff, and I used to help him fold those, those messy little ink th bulletins back then, and they were, they were a mess. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how they and the Apostle Paul did it with those things. What? Yeah, they did. <laughs> that ink, that smelled really special. All right, it doesn't mean, first thing, it doesn't mean inequality at all. I think there are a lot of women today who think that. As soon as they read submission in the Bible, they think that somehow, well, the Bible re relegates them to an area of um, insignificance, of unimportance, of not having any influence in this world. And as a result of that, it's, you know, I'm not equal to my husband. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, let me suggest something else to you. That if you take a look at the way in which God designed the Trinity, make sure you get that one too. Yeah. If you take a look at the way in which God designed the Trinity or how the Trinity actually exists, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you understand that good theology teaches that all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are all equal. And yet, within the very Godhead, there is a functional subordination. How do we know that? Because Jesus repeatedly says to his disciples that he did not come to do his will, but he came to do the will of the Father, right? Jesus didn't come to do his own will. He came to do the will of the Father. He voluntarily surrendered himself to the will of the Father. You can see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. There Jesus is praying. And before the cross, 
And he cries out to God the Father and he says, let this cup pass from me, which was a figurative, semantic way of saying, uh, semantic way of saying, um, uh, cup of suffering. Let this terrible cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, he says, not my will be done, but yours be done. And in doing so, Jesus was voluntarily surrendering himself to the will of the Father. It's not as if Jesus' will was contrary to the Father's will, but at the same time, you understand the huge dilemma that he faced. He was going to become sin for us who knew no sin. He knew no sin. An absolutely perfect person was bearing our sin. That's huge, all right? Um, I don't think you realize because you and I both are uh, imperfect, unholy creatures, how serious that is. But he was going to become sin for us. But in addition to that, not only was there just merely the pain of the cross, but there was also, and more especially, the fact that for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus Christ would be separated from the Father, all right? Imagine for all eternity being one absolutely with the Father, and because of this sin, he was going to be alienated from his own Father. Now, we can't even hardly imagine that. No wonder Jesus faced this huge dilemma. Yes, he wanted to do the Father's will. The Father's will was that he would die as a propitiation for our sins. He would bear upon himself the wrath of God. That's the one thing. But then the other thing was, he was also, as a result of that, deliberately choosing no longer to be one with the Father and to receive the Father's wrath. After perfect agreement for all of eternity... Now he was going to take upon himself the Father's wrath. So this is a horrible dilemma. No wonder he says, not my will be done, but thine be done. All right? So he voluntarily surrenders himself to the will of the Father when he does that. Now the question is, does that make Jesus any less God? No, it doesn't. Does that somehow make him an invaluable part of the Trinity? No, it doesn't either. doesn't make him an invaluable part of the Trinity. Later on, we, Jesus talks about it in the book of the Gospel of John, where he says, I'm going to return to the Father, but when I return to the Father, I'm going to send forth the Holy Spirit, he says to his disciples. So he may teach you all things. Now, Implied there, if Jesus sends forth the Spirit, then the Spirit then voluntarily follows what Jesus says. So here the Spirit is submitting himself to the will of Christ. So within the Trinity, you've got this functional subordination going on. You have God the Father, and then you have Jesus Christ voluntarily submitting himself to the will of the Father. You have the Holy Spirit voluntarily submitting himself to the will of Jesus Christ. Does that make the Holy Spirit any less God? No, it doesn't. Does that make him somehow an invaluable part of the Trinity? No. Does it somehow make him unequal with Jesus Christ or God the Father? No, it doesn't on any of those occasions. So you're beginning to see that when the Bible talks about the concept of submission, it's not talking about somehow somebody that's less valuable or less unimportant or not equal. That's not what it's talking about. All right. Number two, 
Not only that, but when we're talking about this issue of submission, it doesn't mean the infallibility of the husband. There are some women who think that. Okay, Lord, they sort of do this little deal in their mind. Okay, I'm willing to submit myself to my husband. You just make it so he never makes any mistakes. All right, well, that'd be easy. Submit yourself to an absolutely perfect guy. All right, there was one husband who was absolutely perfect and he's already married to the church. All right, so you can't have him. Okay, he was absolutely perfect. He's not gonna be your husband in that sense or directly. So... It doesn't mean the infallibility of the husband. Uh, you know, I think back upon our own marriage and I think about some of the decisions that I've made in the past about the direction or what we're going to do about this particular problem or that particular problem. And as I look back on it, I say, boy, John, that was a stupid decision. Whoa, that was such a stupid decision. Why did you do that? And I'm sure my wife at that particular point was sitting there saying, here he goes again. Here he goes again, make another one of those decisions, you know, about the direction of the marriage. Now, what did she have to do at that particular point? She had to decide, okay, even though he's going to make some really stupid decisions, do, am I interested in obeying God and honoring God by following my husband? So this is a choice that she has to make. We, we have to do that all the time, don't we? With government, the Bible is very clear about the fact that we have to submit ourselves to governmental authority, right? But wait a minute. There are an awful lot of people in office that I don't agree with. Now, am I still responsible to follow them? Yes, as long as they don't require me to do something that is clearly or biblically or morally wrong then I have a responsibility to follow them. Um, in every other case, uh, where it's clearly, morally, biblically, ethically wrong, clearly from Scripture, then I have to disobey the government. But if it's not, then I'm supposed to follow. Even though I may not like it, even though I may not like the direction that it's going, or I may not like the consequences that will come of this, I still have a responsibility to follow. This was the big dilemma that the Pharisees had, and especially the Jewish zealots of the first century, because they were advocating, don't pay taxes. Don't pay taxes. And they thought they'd trip Jesus up on this particular issue, because you know how wicked Caesar is? <laughs> You know how wicked his regime is? Do you realize what he's done and how many people he's put to death? Do you understand this? That was a serious issue. Should we pay our taxes to a wicked regime like that? And they thought they'd trap Jesus by asking him the question. And you remember what Jesus said? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, right? Render unto Caesar. In other words, he's telling them that they have a biblical responsibility to submit themselves to an imperfect regime. Wow. Oh. Um, this is one of the struggles that the book of Ecclesiastes talks about. This semester I'm teaching a, a, a class on the book of Ecclesiastes. And later on in Ecclesiastes... Uh, Solomon, who I believe Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. Actually, Ecclesiastes is not a biographical polemic on his life. But later on, Solomon questions, why is it that God puts fools into leadership? 
A lot of wives have asked that question. <laughs> Why is it that God has put fools in the leadership? All right. And uh, one of the answers that Solomon gives is that God exalts them and puts them on a high pedestal in order that when they fall, they fall far and they fall hard. Boom. That's the ultimate answer. He puts them up in high standing in leadership ultimately to show that he's in control and he's the one that can bring them down. Boom. That causes man to respect him even more. Why does God put fools into leadership? Good question. Well, if you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm willing to be submissive to my husband just as long, just as long as he makes all the right, perfect decisions, then you're playing a mental game in your life and it's not the game that one, God wants you to play. Thirdly, it doesn't mean immobility. There are some women who think that as well. They think, well... Uh, my husband is sort of the, uh, the engine on this marriage, and I am uh, the caboose, and I just go and do all that he does, and I just follow him, and I do nothing. He just sort of pulls me along in his life. That's a bad concept of marriage, too, because a woman like that is not a contributing member of a partnership. She's just along for the ride. She doesn't, this is the type of woman who doesn't view her own intellectual abilities or gifts or talents as being any value to their marriage. And you know what? As a woman believes that, it makes it very, very difficult for a husband to love that. No. If she's a valuable, thinking, committed member of a partnership that has gifts and abilities, then she should be contributing those to the overall direction of that marriage. He's not the engine. She's the caboose. No, they're both up there in the engine making decisions about where that engine's going to go. That's a valuable part of it. As a woman, he needs her insight. Number four, it doesn't mean in articulation. It doesn't mean in articulation. Now, I'm a former pastor, so all these have to be alliterated, okay? So everything has to start with I. So it doesn't mean inequality or infallibility or immobility or inarticulation. There are some women who think that. They think, well, my husband... Um, He's the one who does all the talking. He's the voice piece of our marriage. I don't say anything. He says everything. No, doesn't mean that either. Um, it, it, she sort of has the philosophy that I remain silent. No, even the Bible talks about women who are causing chaos in the church, in the Corinthian church, that the, husband, or the wives were supposed to go home and question their husbands not cause disruption in the church services, but go home and question their husbands. So there should be, she should be constantly thinking. She should be constantly uh, asking questions. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. Um, it's not where she has to remain silent all the time. Um, fifth, it doesn't mean intellectual stagnation either. And really, this particular view of the wife's role is a doormat mentality. 
I don't do any thinking. My husband does all my thinking for me. Well, if that's the case, then she really puts herself in jeopardy to sin against God because God will require her to evaluate what her husband says. And if her husband were to ever require of her something that is unethical, clearly biblically wrong, morally wrong, she has a biblical responsibility to stand up and say, I'm sorry, sweetheart, I really love you, but I cannot do that. You're not my God, you're my husband. And when you ask me to violate God's word, then you're trying to be my God and you're not my God. You're my husband. I love you in every other way. I'm gonna follow you and follow your leadership. If she puts her mind in neutral and doesn't evaluate what's coming at her, then she becomes a doormat. And the Bible doesn't want wives that are doormats. God wants thinking women who use theology and live biblically in this world. Sometimes a wife can be a good source of conscience for her husband. That doesn't mean that she should nitpick him, and it doesn't mean that she should um, argue with him, and it doesn't mean that she is contentious with him, but occasionally she can say to him, you know, sweetheart, I think your attitude towards so-and-so was a wrong attitude. That's okay. That's a rebuke that's meant in love. That's all right. Wives can rebuke husbands. Bible's okay with that. Just as husbands can rebuke wives. It should be done with the right attitude. It should be done with a loving spirit. It should be done with your spouse's welfare in mind. But if you are intellectually stagnant, that means you basically put your thinking on hold and you let your husband do all your thinking for you, that's never going to... You're not, never going to be, again, a contributing member of a partnership. Number six, it doesn't mean your influence is impossible. There are some women who believe that. Oh, well, if I take this submissive role, then, oh, wow. I'm never going to make this my mark in this world. You know, I would argue just the opposite. I can establish a pretty good case in Scripture that people who take the submissive role are the ones who ultimately change history. That was Jesus' role. He took the submissive role. They're the ones who change history. She has a responsibility to bring up the next generation. Who's going to lead the next generation? Those kids are. Her kids are. She has a responsibility to instill everything she can within those children. Just because um, you're not taking a leadership role in your marriage doesn't mean you're not influential. You can be incredibly influential. Um, I think a great example of this is in 1 Samuel. I mean, 1 Samuel is not primarily about Samuel and, her, and his father, Elkanah. First Samuel is about Samuel and his mother, Hannah. God uses an incredibly godly, submissive woman to turn an entire nation around. Um, 
There, 1 Samuel chapters 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, all develop the influence that Hannah had in bringing up a godly child by the name of Samuel. And by the way, right there, it's contrasted with that uh, wicked high priest, Eli, and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And here is a woman bringing up a godly son and a wicked high priest who by societal standards was well respected from a religious standpoint, bringing up two evil sons. What a contrast, especially within a Jewish culture, because in the Jewish culture, everybody would have pointed to the man who was the high priest as being the guy to emulate. But first Samuel points to a woman in Jewish culture. That's something who has no status in society, but is bringing up the next leader of the nation. Who is that? Samuel, the next great prophet. That's who God exalts there. Wow. An incredible story. So sometimes some women begin to think, well, if I have to take the submissive role in marriage, I have no influence upon this life in society. Well, it's just the opposite. That's the way the world would think, but God's thoughts are just the opposite of man's thoughts. So last, number seven, it doesn't mean iniquitous manipulation either. <laughs> some, I'm really stretching the eyes now. I know I realize that. All right, iniquitous manipulation. There are some women who, well, have you ever heard the little saying, my husband is the head of the home, but I'm the neck that turns the head? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's right. My husband wears the pants, but I tell him which one to put on. All right. That's right. See, that's iniquitous manipulation. And there are some women who think, okay, I'm supposed to be submissive in this role. He's supposed to take the leadership, but I'm kind of like the puppeteer. I'm the marionette leader, and he's got all the strings attached to him, and I'm behind the scenes pulling all the strings, and he's the guy kind of up in front, but I'm the one steering this whole thing. All right? Nope. That's not what God intended submission to be either. That's iniquitous, and that's manipulative, and that's the reason why we call iniquitous manipulation. Nope. Um, so you say, okay, those are all the things that submission is not. What is it? What is it? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. Let's see if we can answer it. Submission, number one, is a divine plan of function and order. In fact, the Hebrew or the Greek term actually is the term hupotasso, which was in the classical Greek used to speak of soldiers in rank marching, pillars in place, like you see the ancient Greek temples with one pillar lined up after another pillar lined up after another pillar. They would hupotasso, some of you that are carpenters or um, understand what I'm talking about, where you line things up, you have one base and then you line it up to that particular base pillar so that it's all perfectly lined up. And in that sense, you are hupotassoing one pillar to another pillar. Soldiers in rank, pillars in place, the church obeying God. This is what God intended as a divine plan of function and order. Uh, I belong in the military for several years. In fact, for a time I was stationed on, 
an Air Force base in Germany. It was a German Air Force base at Ingolstadt, Germany. And um, that's where I really gained my appreciation for German cooking, all right? Wow, do I love German cooking. <sighs> big bowls of big fat noodles, you know? And they usually have a cream sauce gravy that goes over top of those things. That's living, all right? I'm absolutely sure that the future marriage supper of the Lamb is going to have German cooks, all right, in the future. But um, when I was in the military, one of the things they do when they bring you in the military is they teach you how to march. Everybody has to learn it. Officers right down to enlisted men. They teach you how to march. Now, why do they do that? So that they'll look good in parades, right? No, that's not the reason they teach you to march. This is ancient, ancient military tradition. Why? Because war is a time where society is literally falling apart. Everything's falling apart during time of war. Some of you that live back during the time of World War II understand what I'm talking about. Where the world is in war. Society is falling apart and coming apart at the edges. And it's the army that's able to maintain discipline and order in the midst of that chaos that ends up achieving its objectives. That's the army. When you teach military people to march, you're teaching them to maintain discipline, order, and rank in the midst of chaos and society and everything going apart around them. It's a form of discipline. This word, this old classical Greek word, hupotasso, is that word. It means a divine plan of function and order in the midst of a world of chaos. And when you look around you and you take a look at the homes and the families that are in chaos, marriages are falling apart, parental problems, uh, families at each other all the time. When you see that going on, you think to yourself, this needs godly discipline and order. And it does. It definitely does. So it's a divine plan of function and order that God has intended to, to be. Soldiers in rank, marching in order, um, pillars in place, so to speak, ranked up in order, lined up in straight line. Bringing order out of chaos is the idea. That's the word submission. Secondly, it's a way of life for every believer. In fact, grab your Bible. Let's go back just for a moment. I haven't pointed you to this passage yet, but we're really already working from this. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5. We're interested in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. But in the verse just prior to that, in verse 21, Paul has already said to all Christians and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now you'll notice that this is what all Christians are supposed to do. Now, Paul is not saying 
that a husband needs to be subject to his wife. He's not saying that here any more than he's saying that parents need to be subject to their children later on in Galatians, I mean, Ephesians 6. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that all of us, male and female alike, understand that as we grow up through life and society and in the church, that we have to be submissive to several different people. That's a common experience for all of us. When we're kids, we have to be submissive to our parents, our mothers and our fathers. When we're in school, we have to be submissive to our teachers. When we're out on the road and uh, traveling along state roads, we have to be submissive to government authority because the state trooper is going to pull us alongside of the road, pull us over and give us a ticket if we don't. If we speed or we disobey traffic laws, that's going to happen. We all have to learn how to be subject to one another. When you're growing up in church, same thing's true. When you're a little kid, you need to be submissive to your Sunday school teacher or your WANA leaders. Um, you have to learn to be submissive to the church leadership, to the elders of the church and the pastors of the church uh, because, as Hebrews 13 says, they oversee the welfare of your soul. And there could be nothing more important than that, hey? The welfare of your soul. So you make their job easier by being submissive to them. So this is a common experience. This is not something that a young woman, when she finally decides to get married, she's going to say, oh, no. Now, let me see. I've got to learn this concept of submission. wonder what this thing's all about. All right? Uh, you know, and no, no, no. This is something that she and her brothers have had to practice from the time that they were little kids. <clears throat> And to the degree and success that they learned that and the importance of God's order and structure in the family and in the church is the degree that she'll understand that and practice that in her marriage. If she's had problems with it, if she's rebelling against her parents and rebelling against her teachers and rebelling against church leadership, don't marry her. Bad news. I don't care how cute and sweet she can be to you. You're marrying a a stick of dynamite and it's going to blow up in your face if she's rebellious if she has a problem following that kind of leadership don't do it sometimes I'll get young men come in to college and they'll say Dr. Street you know I'm dating this girl she's a really sweet girl I'm thinking about marrying her and here's, here's what she's like da 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 you know and most of the time I'm saying it's great she's Christian she loves the Lord you love the Lord and you seem to love each other good Go, go get married. You know, um, I think God's blessing is upon that. But occasionally I'll get a young man come in and say, you know, I'm dating this girl and she's, she's always walking the edge. You know, she always wants to do this and break this rule and do this and break this rule. And, and I said, I don't care how sweet she is to you. You marry her, you're in trouble because she's going to do the same thing to you when you are trying to lead her in your home. She's going to walk the edge all the time. Don't marry her. Bad news. Bad news. Red stop signs. Flags go up. All right. Watch that gal. No, no, no. So, so it, this is a way of life for every believer. This is not something that all of a sudden she adopts when she learns when she wants to get married. This is something that we all should do and we all should practice. Thirdly, it's a protection for the wife. Sort of like an umbrella. 
right? Her husband's leadership is like her umbrella. And as long as she's underneath that leadership, then he takes, he bears a lot of the problems that are going on in her life or could go on in her life. And she has all kinds of freedom underneath that umbrella. And she's not exposed to the elements that are in the world. The same thing is true. The Bible uses a similar analogy in 1 Corinthians 5 about people that are members of a church. When you're a member of a church, you're under the umbrella of that church's care. So you're not exposed to the elements of the world. But if you rebel and you have to be disciplined by the church, then the Apostle Paul says to the man there in 1 Corinthians 5, or talks to the church about the man who has committed adultery with his stepmother. Uh, he says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his soul may be saved. That is, remove him, excommunicate him from membership, expose him to the elements of the world that is Satan so that he will be taught to obey Christ. And eventually, by the way, that works because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this man repents and comes back. Wow. Wow. And Paul says to them, then you have to receive him back with rejoicing. And literally, the Greek there is you receive him back, you have a party to receive him back. Yay! We have a party. He's repented. We're glad to have you back. And now he comes back under the umbrella of, of the church again and the protective graces of the church. He's no longer exposed to Satan and the elements of the world. He's there underneath that protective umbrella. That's a good thing. In a similar way, the Bible talks about a husband's leadership being like a protective envelopment for the wife. And we'll show you that in a little bit. In addition to this, notice what he says. He says in verse 22 again, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, that's really important little qualification there, that as to the Lord. Um, in other words, to the degree that she is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior is to the degree that she will be submissive to her husband. If she's having problems being submissive to her husbands, that's more of an indicator, not of her quality as a wife, but her standing as a believer. That is, she's having problems with the Lord, primarily. Her main problem is not really with her husband. That's the way it shows up. That's the symptomatic external symptom of it. But her real problem is her submission to the Lord and whether or not she wants to be submissive to the Lord. Because to the degree that she is submissive to the Lord is the degree that she will be submissive to her husband because the Lord is the one who put him in leadership over her. 